The coronavirus is the biggest story of your lives so far. So what are you going to do with it? Rather than take spring break off or even summer break later on, the student journalists at the master's school did a lot to cover the pandemic. And I should say they continue to do a lot. So I met up with their advisor, Ellen Cowie, to talk about it. And also at the end of this episode, I call up Ivy Kaplan for an overall review of their work. I'm Alex McNamee. Welcome to Journalism 101. Take a seat. reflect, which I want to do a lot of, I want to start with just what's happening now. Um, and, and, and right now, obviously, the kind of central story to this pandemic is vaccinating. Um, and what's the status? I'm a teacher that has now been, that's now in a priority group. Um, when can I get my vaccine? What does it look like? What's, how does it work? What's it all about? So I just kind of want to ask you, what sorts of conversations have you and your staff been having about uh, ways that you need to cover that aspect going forward in ways that you already have? We did, uh, in addition to our newspaper, we also have TBN, Tower Broadcast News. Um, Have you had a chance to see any of those segments? Yes, absolutely. I I was just uh, refreshing my memory of one of the recent videos you posted um, just about a a teacher getting a vaccine. Yes. It's on early February. Yes. So I was just thinking about that one. Um, So that really has been probably the bulk of our vaccine coverage per se. We did a really lovely center spread. I think it was in our third issue. I'm just pulling it off the wall here. One of the editors in chief did a whole sort of, you know, the journey to kind of getting the vaccine, not getting the vaccine in your arm, just getting it into, you know, the world. Yeah. Um, a big center spread, twists and turns, kind of. So it's a whole, you know, an amazing sort oh, of. That. Yeah. It's uh, there. So there's basically like four segments of the article. And then there's phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. And then, you know, this, this illustration looks at the first responders, prisoners, homeless people, essential workers, children, young adults, old, elderly, you know, people with health risks. So it's kind of, you know, taking a lot of people into consideration. So I was really proud of them for that coverage. It was pretty amazing. So we did that. And the other piece that's been you know, we've had conversations about, but no one has picked up just yet, I think, because there's other things just, Mm -hmm. excuse me, in the air. Um, But to me, part of the interesting argument or the interesting challenge or complexity is looking at other states. I I do feel like we've been fortunate in New York that that teachers were put on the list early and we Mm -hmm. had a priority. We were sort of the second tier. So, early February or maybe even late January, you know, was like the first moment when we could pay sign up for a vaccine. But there are other states like Texas where they're saying, okay, that's it. All the schools have to open, but teachers aren't even eligible for vaccines yet. Mm -hmm. Um, And just the complexity and the, 
I don't know, I would say the injustice of that situation to me is something that's worth covering. Um, but of course, when you're a high school newspaper, you always have to think about, you know, how does this affect our students? How is it um, relevant to our community? Now, those are other teachers, other students who are, you know, in the American landscape, they're not at our school. Um, we are a day and boarding school. So we do have kids coming from a variety of places. But as far as I know, we don't have any students hailing from Texas. I know we have at least one teacher who grew up in Texas mm -hmm. and our head of school actually spent her maybe first year or two of life in Texas, but then she moved out and was in the Northeast the most of the rest of the time. So those are a little bit of tenuous connections. So, but those, that's not, Texas isn't the only state, right? You know, um, right. So that is a story that I have sort of brought up. And the other piece that I find really interesting about vaccines um, is this whole question. And, and to be perfectly honest, I, with all that I'm doing with this newspaper, I don't always get to like look at the bigger world enough <laughs> and see what's happening like out actually in the world. Um, but I had listened um, to a really interesting thing on uh, NPR and they were talking about the, the issue around the fact that the United States government, you know, poured a ton of money into these um, companies so that they could do the research to get the vaccines. Then they got the vaccines and then they, um, they're still charging the American government or whoever for the vaccines. But normally we would be paying them because they took the risk and, and the, you know, upfront mm -hmm. costs of developing it, but they didn't have to take any risks. But that's the other reason why you would give them a patent is because they took that business risk, but they yeah. didn't take any business risks and they still have the patent. So is it ethical that they have not released that to the whole world if the whole world needs it? And if we don't release it to the whole world, we're just going to keep chasing our tails with variants. You know, mm -hmm. again, I don't know. Um, if there's any later developments on that story. But to me, that ethical question is a really interesting one to explore, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and those are some side conversations we've had. We haven't had that as a big a big class conversation. So uh, yeah, there's, there's so many elements of the vaccine story that I think are really fascinating. Yeah. Um, and we've had one student on our, on our newspaper staff who actually has been vaccinated. Mm -hmm. And we have another student on staff, he's eligible. But yeah, you know, the kind of the unveiling of students getting it and mm -hmm. and what about, you know, the accessibility for students, particularly when they're saying, well, we need to open all the schools. Well, really? Well, how are the kids feeling? If the teachers have it, okay, great. But what about the kids? So right. that's a piece that I think the kids have been so, most of them, so eager to be back in school mm -hmm. that I think that part of the conversation of should we be pushed back into school when there's no vaccine for us? is not as loud and clear an argument that I've been hearing, but I think it's there and I think it's real and I think it's worth exploring, you know, from a journalistic, a high school journalistic perspective. I think it's really interesting. I, I wanna go back to the comment about covering sort of the rollout in other states, like you mentioned Texas. And then you talk about, you know, okay, well, who do we know that has a connection from Texas? And you are essentially, looking for sources. You're looking to localize the story, which I think has been one of the 
really excellent things about the coverage that your publication has done is that so much of it is local and, and tied to what's going on in your community or, you know, at the broadest, your state. Whereas it's so easy with this pandemic coverage to just kind of repeat the news and the quotes and the tones that are being um, spat out nationwide um, and, and are in larger um, publications nationally. How important was it for you guys to keep your focus on your community, on your school, rather than just kind of reciprocating the same old stuff that everybody is saying out in the national media? It's super important. And I mm -hmm. would say that, um, you know, the school, I've been really grateful that our school has been so supportive of our journalism program. Um, and we do have an intro course that all the students have to take before they can move on to the tower production course. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we talk about, you know, you have to keep the news local, you have to keep it relevant. And we have two editors in chief that are calling the shots. We have pitch meetings and they're, they have to write pitch sheets and they're very serious. And then when they, the editors use one of these random, you know, generators, order generators, and that's how people get to put out their pitches. And if someone puts out a pitch and there isn't a local angle, if there is not a connection back to the school, I don't have to do a damn thing. I just sit quietly in the corner. The, the editors are not having it. You know, if yeah. there's not a connection, it's not happening, you know? Mm -hmm. So that just gets squashed like a bug, you know? So, um, but we've got, you know, 20 kids in the class. We've got kids who are on different continents. We've got a kid in Taiwan, a kid in Uganda. Um, most of the other kids are in the tri-state area. We still have mm -hmm. some of them are online. And then we have about 12 or 14 in the class. Um, but they're really good about thinking about networking. And, and also another thing that um, I always encourage them in the summer, if they can do a journalism program, to do a journalism program. And a lot of those programs, they're meeting kids who are doing journalism from all over the country. Mm -hmm. um, even if like this past summer, they were, a lot of them were doing them virtually, but they were still meeting. Oh, I know somebody who lives in Kansas. Yeah. She's the editor of her paper there. Or, oh, I met somebody, you know, from my, you know, Jewish camp who's, you know, from, you know, somewhere else or, oh yeah, I did a, you know, violin intensive with this kid from <laughs> Italy and okay. We had this cool coverage on, you know, Italy. Um, so they're really good at networking and thinking mm -hmm. about that. And then, you know, just, okay, who do we know? And the other thing too is um, thinking about our alumni and that has been a really lovely connection, um, you know, or thinking about, okay, well, where did people go to school? Maybe we don't have a student who is from Louisiana, but we've got, you know, five alumni that we can think of who are down at Tulane. So let's, let's, you know, look them up. And I think with social media, um, students are connected to our, at least our recent alumni in a way that is, um, just more accessible than I think it used to be. Um, so they, they can, you know, connect to them through Snapchat or Instagram or whatever, and they can just get an answer really quickly. Um, because it used to be, they'd go off and then there were a college and who knows what their email was. And, <clears throat> you know, back in the day they were on Facebook, but that's, something that our grandparents use now, kind of that's their perception of Facebook anymore, you know, though we do use it with our alumni. Um, yeah. But our current students don't even know how to post on Facebook, <laughs> just a challenge. So I think this particular group staff that I have um, 
has just been really good at recognizing, you know, networking. And if there's not a connection, the editors will not entertain it. So it's off the table, you know, and they'll say like, okay, sure. You want to cover that. That's a national story. What can we, what are you going to tell us that they can't get a better handle on reading the New York times or the guardian or the post Mm -hmm. or whatever else it is, you know? So that I think has been super clear to them and they understand the only way they can do it is that way. Yeah. The other, the other last piece, if you want one more piece is Mm -hmm. um, this year, I also had an amazing um, parent of an advisee who he is um, a writer and he does a lot of education writing. And so he also gave me a terrific list of um, people that he's worked with um, writers writers and then just also um, experts in the field who are people of color um, in the educational higher education field and that has been such an incredible resource for two reasons one um, because it's just given us connection like okay we can talk to somebody who's at the SAT board but there were also really getting a lot more expert voices of people of color um, that I think is so important for our community to have and to recognize and so that's just a really nice additional um, depth of coverage that um, is almost an invisible piece, but it's, it's, it's rich and I'm really grateful for it. Speaking of depth of coverage, as I look at your website on this March 10th and, and you just look down the headlines, master's admissions creates reform in the wake of COVID, club soccer tackles the challenges of COVID-19, a year into the pandemic, tech department soldiers on, uh, you know, teacher gets COVID-19 vaccine, high-risk sports permitted to resume, athletic director provides an update, Dobbs 16 perseveres through restrictions. Do you, does, does your staff have specific conversations about continuing this type of coverage, or is it to the point now, and I, I'm sure it is, it says to some respect, that it is just a part of every story, that it is restrictions, COVID-19, pandemic, whatever, is just a part of the life that we're living in now. Absolutely, it's the latter. And you're right, it's almost like not even a conversation because that's just that's just the air we breathe or the air we breathe through our little masks, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, when we first started, and it was just about a year ago now, obviously, you know, and we lost, it was, so today is Wednesday. So it was this, this week that we're in now, what had happened was the Sunday before it was March 9th yesterday was a Sunday night. And it was, we were going into our last week before spring break and the principal, um, the head of school, she just called it. She said, no, I'm not going one more week. I I'm closing down, you know, cause we're in Westchester. There were cases in Westchester. Mm-hmm. You could just feel the walls closing in. Um, she was getting a lot of pressure from other teacher, other, other heads of school, like, no, you know, we all got to do the same thing. We all got to stay open this one last week until spring break. And she was not having it. And she said, you know, I'm not doing this for the safety of my school. And I, I really appreciate that she made that decision. It was a tough mm-hmm. call. And I think professionally, you know, she took a lot of hits for it, but in the end <laughs> time told like, okay, she wasn't wrong. All right. But, you know, so good for, you know, good for her, you know, for kind of, you know, pushing against all of those other voices. 
we met as a newspaper staff. My very first Zoom call with students was with the newspaper staff. And I also invited the intro class. Mm-hmm. So my very, and our classes are generally, as, on, as a school are generally small. We try to keep to 14, 15, 16 kids in a class, like 17 kids is a big class. Um, so my very first Zoom call was with the other co-advisor and we had about 28 kids on that call, which was big, you know, and we said, okay, anybody who wants to get on the call and we're going to talk about this April Fool's Day issue, because that's what we had planned on doing. Right. Um, But and we did talk about the April Fool's Day issue. It was it was a hard moment to be thinking about (laughs) being funny, you know, but we did it. We did it, you know. And then, you know, the conversation came around to, well, so what about this COVID thing? You know, and we had already prior to that, we had already done some COVID coverage in January and in February because we have a large uh, Chinese community and the Chinese kids had been raising money for, you know, to set, to raise money, to send masks and to send things to China, you know, to help out. So we had done that coverage. Um, we, I think we had at least two stories on COVID before it was like a thing when it was just like, oh, that's an Asia problem. You know, that, that was sort of the percent and we weren't saying that, but that was yeah, in yeah. the discourse. And <laughs> excuse me, in any case, so I said, okay, you know, so we have this COVID thing. So what are we going to do for coverage? And this one kid said, um, Ms. Cowie, um, it's spring break is coming up. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh-huh. So tell me what you're going to do. You know, you've had to cancel your trip to Turks and Caicos, no doubt. So what are you going to do? Sit on the couch, eat Cheetos and watch as much Netflix as you can? Like, this, you call yourself journalist? If you're a journalist, this is the biggest story of your life staring at you like a tidal wave. You can sit there and watch as much Netflix as you want, or you can get up and start writing. I said, I'm not suggesting you go out there and get sick and die. That's not what I'm suggesting. But you can make phone calls. You can talk to experts over the phone. You can do Zoom calls. Do what you can. This mm-hmm. is the biggest story you have. You can mm-hmm. go and meet that, or you can curl up in a corner. You decide. It's your break. You want to spend it at home? Not doing anything? That's your business. You let me know. And these kids were amazing. They, and I sometimes regret, I sort of, you know, had that conversation because they never stopped writing. They didn't stop writing all through break. Even when the summer came and I was dead exhausted, they didn't stop writing. You know, they wrote all through the summer. It was extraordinary. And, And in the summer, you know, there's no grades. There's no scholastic journalism awards. They're just doing it because they're reporting and this is real and it's happening and they had it. They were just going. And every time I just, I wanted to then get on my couch and have my Cheetos and Netflix. And it was like, <laughs> oh no, I don't think so. There were, you know, I get these emails or texts, Miss Cowie. Did you see that? Did you see that first draft I sent you, Miss Cowie? Could you please look at Miss Miss Cowie? Did you look at that first draft yet? Second <laughs> draft, third draft, whatever. I'd like to put that up. What you know, can I get the approval on that photo or whatever? And it was amazing. They worked all summer long. It was extraordinary. And we started with um, having a tab on our website that said Coronavirus Chronicles. It's, I think it's still there. Oh, yeah. But now we don't even put anything under Coronavirus Chronicles because everything is Coronavirus Chronicles. Right. You know? yeah. Speaking of, you have 61 stories filed into your COVID or Coronavirus Chronicles section of your website. You have 30 other ones that are filed under something else called uh, coronavirus coverage. And then you have everything else that is, you know, living in other sections of the website now because it's a part of everyday life. Initially, at the start of all this, you have 
um, a lot of breaking coverage and reactionary things, you know, some editorial uh, opinion pieces. And then there becomes a flip that's switched when, okay, this isn't just going away. <laughs> this is something that we're gonna have to continue to follow. When did that happen for you, for your students that, okay, we uh, let's let off of just quickly reacting to this. And now we have to think about this is long-term. What is the scope of this covering it for a student publication for months and months and months and months? Yeah, great question. And it's... <laughs> Because, uh, because you get into, I mean, it, what it becomes uh, on the Towers website is, you know, it becomes personal stories of, of the students at your school. And it becomes, how is this affecting people mentally? And, and um, you know, what are they doing to get by? And what is testing? What is getting tested? What, you know, how is this affecting, okay, now the end of this weird school year that got shut down is over, but now we're coming to the next one and here's the new reality still. So it becomes a totally different kind of coverage the longer that the pandemic continues. Yeah, and, and, and that's an, it's an excellent question. And I, I honestly can't say, you know, when you use that term, when this flips, switch flipped, I can't say there was a flip switch moment in time it was just you know moving into it and I can't tell you the day when we didn't think anymore like oh make sure you put that on the coronavirus chronicles tab you know whatever just because it I mean maybe, exactly. maybe you know our web editors are still filing in them in both places or they're not I don't even know um because they take care of that part but it yeah it's it's a great question and and also you know when you're living it up close and excuse me, you know, like last spring, we were, we were doing sports coverage, for example, and the kids were really mourning the loss of, hey, I was hoping to be recruited for baseball. And I was expecting, mm -hmm. you know, talent scouts to come see me for my spring, my spring season, and they can't see me. Um, and then you realize, oh, that's this year too. You know, it's, it's another whole grade. It's another whole, these are things we can't do. And these are things, oh, and we also can't do this. And we also can't do this and this and this. And okay, so what is a, what does a prom look like, you know, for the second year in a row to not have a prom? Um, what is graduation this year going to look like? Um, you know, we can't do reunion. Um, I was just upstairs Xeroxing something, copying something, and I saw there was a, you know, a letter to our alumni. You know, we're an old school, and, you know, uh, women who had been, gone to the school 50 years ago who were so excited to come back for their 50th anniversary, you know, and it said, hey, it's your 50th anniversary, but it's a pandemic, you know, and so <laughs> we're having a virtual one, and I just thought, Okay, so now if you're 50 and you graduated, so you're 68, you're probably, you know, you might be media savvy, media, media savvy, but there's just so many places that we've had to let go of and let go of as a society, right? And for students, like you're only in high school for four years. So a year is 25% and we're not done with it yet, you know? Mm -hmm. So almost half of your time in high school is just, it is what it is. That's, it's going to be a completely different experience. 
So I think just the realization of how much is lost and how profound it is, is still dawning on us every day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. When you think about, uh, you know, when you, when your students are brainstorming or thinking of ideas of, of stories to tell, how much thought goes into it or, or was it ever kind of put to their attention that just ask yourself how it's affecting you personally, uh, because you and your peers are very similar. You guys are all going through this together. And so if you are, you know, if your screen time is going up or if you feel like your mental health is um, changing or being affected, then it's probably happening to somebody else, right? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a piece where, you know, going into our next news cycle and we're asking them to think about their pitch sheets, you know, they're, they're, they're ideally drawing from many layers, sort of like picking up radio signals, you know, mm-hmm. um, and every writer also has a beat that they're supposed to be checking in on, okay, what's happening in the science department or over in maintenance, are they doing any new projects or, you know, digging up any steam pipes that are, you know, bursting or whatever is happening. Um, so there's that layer, but I also always just say, you know, like just, you know, be a sponge, be aware. What are people talking about? What are people saying? What are they, what are, what are the memes that are coming up that you're seeing, you know, on, on, you know, on all your social media, what is it that is, that is emerging in the, in the conversation on whatever level it's happening right now? And are we tapping into that story? I think while they haven't always said, um, excuse me, I'm struggling from addiction or I'm struggling for mental illness or I'm struggling with the fact yeah. that I can't sleep, mm-hmm. but they will say, hey, let's do a story on sleep. Let's do a story on mental health in this time. Let's do a story on you know, addiction stuff. Um, you know, and and I, I can't always know how close it is to home, um, but they have done stories on all of those pieces. Um, I know one, one student also wanted to do a piece on what is it to have a parent who's out of work or maybe two parents out of work right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a story that she wasn't able to pursue because she wasn't able to tease out anybody in our community who was willing to talk about that. Um, and it is, it is a sensitive topic and we are an independent school and, you know, money and, and class issues are always really challenging in any society. And I think at a society in a place where, you know, the sensitivity of identity as a high school student is super intense. And then where you have some people who are incredibly wealthy and some kids who are, you know, completely, you know, on scholarship and maybe really are coming, you know, first generation students to think about going to college and they're really coming from a different place um, economically. Those are really tense, difficult conversations. So we, that was a story we weren't able to get to, but I think they're really good at, at sort of sensitively observing. Um, so I, that isn't a piece that I've felt we've had to, you know, knock them over the head or squeeze out of them. I think they've been really thoughtful about that. And um, there was one story that a student, the, the girl from Uganda did last year um, and she did it in the first person. Um, it was an op-ed piece about the challenges of being a big sister during COVID. And, and her, both of her parents were also working from home. They have a bunch of kids. 
And there are times when she has her little sister who's like three sitting on her lap, you know, and, and maybe one of her teachers was like, excuse me, is that a distraction? And she's like, um, no, you know, she's here and it's she's not mm-hmm. running around the room breaking stuff or eating Legos or whatever, you know, and, and just the reality of that. And I'm not really doing justice to her story entirely, but the beauty of it and just the honesty of it and, and just, you know, kind of keeping it real was really terrific, you know, so um yeah, I think they're really pretty good at doing that. Although I think because they're very careful about journalistic ethics, they don't maybe always allow themselves that time to let themselves think about that first person perspective because they're so used to, I can't, I can't use I, I have to, you know, be in third person. I have to be that, that you know, um, not editorializing. And, and so I think sometimes letting that soft part breathe and, and speak into yep. that is important too. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good reminder. On that note of, you know, stories that are memorable to you as a part of this coverage, and even more generally, um, you know, aspects of your students' work and journalism that has has made you proud throughout this pandemic and how they've done things. What have you been most proud of or impressed by? What are other stories that stand out to you as just being really exemplary um, pieces that that uh, your students have have done. Yeah, I mean, I am I'm just so. It's hard for me, Alex, to think of like just one or two because they're just yeah. the fact that these kids have just been just knocking it out of the ballpark and really just relentless almost, you know, in their storytelling. And, and I just, I just feel like they have been so committed to being journalists and to telling the stories and just being too sensitive, you know, I'm getting a little verklempt here, but, um, you know, just being, you know, sensitive to that. And I have just been so proud of them for that, you know, as, as an overall piece. Um, it's, it's, a little scary for me to single out one or two stories because you no, know, yeah, sure. another story that you don't, you don't mention and they say, oh, man, <laughs> I should have said this one or I should have said that one. But their ability to keep thinking about so many different angles and also to be thoughtful about, okay, well, maybe here's a connection I have and maybe that's a connection that I can tie a story to um, and, and think about how I could build a story off of, you know, this piece that I know, or I overheard, or I'm, I'm aware of, um, and that might open up a whole new piece. Um, that has been really amazing. You know, the other piece in, in addition to the coronavirus pandemic has been, you know, the whole awareness, I think, sort of like a national reckoning about, um, white privilege and, Mm -hmm. um, inequalities in our country, particularly in relation to our Black Americans. Yes. And I think that as an independent school, which has been a predominantly white institution and, you know, you know, built for, you know, upper class families for many generations, I think that we have had more and more students of color come into our school. But I think that that has been a bumpy ride for a lot of our kids. Um, And there's been some really, really hard, painful moments. And um, our school, along with other schools, you know, kind of went through this period this summer 
where there were Instagram accounts, where there were students of color, alumni of color, you know, recounting some of their painful experience. And, and sometimes, you know, teachers, you know, including myself getting called out for a moment of insensitivity. And that was really difficult when you're, you know, you don't have a space one, the bigger, the bigger thing of, wow, I really caused pain to such and such a kid. And then also thinking about not, not being in a space of being able to process that with your peers, because everybody's sort of siloed and off to themselves and not necessarily in that moment, have a chance to connect with that kid and kind of talk it through. And even know if they want to talk it through, maybe they just needed to be heard. And even though there's more context, do they even want to hear that context? And maybe my job is just to listen. Um, but in saying all of that, the other piece that I think that we've really been working through in addition to the whole coronavirus thing has been thinking about how do we do our coverage in a way that is um, more inclusive and more thoughtful. And I think that our students have, I've been incredibly proud of them for really working at that and really thinking carefully about, and not that we're doing it perfectly. I think there's mm -hmm. still room for criticism and I think there's plenty of room still for growth. And we still are predominantly white staff, even though we do have students of color on staff. But I think their, their care and their sensitivity in all of that has also been something I have been really proud of to see that sensitivity and growth and commitment to doing it better. Um, even if it's imperfect, keep working at getting better. So that's another piece. I think the general sentiment is a great place to leave it. Um, th this, this past year plus has not been short on complicated topics to cover that have been thrown at these students and the work has been excellent. So uh, Ellen, thanks again for uh, talking to me today. Um, it's been a real joy having this conversation. And yeah, you know, maybe in another year, there will be more spacey time to look back and start to pinpoint some of the stories that uh, really stood out at this point in time. Yeah. I think what, one last thing, if I could share one last thing, I would just say that one thing I've been aware of, and, and for some reason, like how you were saying, is there a flip switch moment? But I, for some reason, this past week, I have been more hypersensitive to, and maybe it's because our boarders have just come back, um, our, some of our boarding students, and I'm a, mm -hmm. I'm a dorm director in the, in the dorm, and so eating meals with some of the kids, and, you know, these kids, you know, maybe had to be remote longer when our day students were already here, so they were sort of siloed in their homes longer, and, and there was a real longing for a lot of them to come back to campus, and yet when I'm at meals, and we have our, our tables in the dining hall sort of have these little plexiglass sort of overhead bird's eye view, like, yeah. little, you know, um, plus sign sort of they're, they're divided in like pie quarters. So you can see mm -hmm. the other people, you can take off your mask, you can eat. So it's like you're sitting at a table with someone, although it's very difficult to hear. Um, not so bad when they have their mask off. But in any case, sometimes when I'm looking at, at some of the kids at the tables, or even the kids in my advisory, you know, like homeroom type deal, when we don't have any kind of programming, they're just looking down at their phones when it's just like free time. They're just on their phones. Or the kids in the dining hall even, they're finally back, yay, they're together. And then I look at them and they're looking at their phones. They've got their headphones in and they're, and, and they've, I fear for just as on a national level that a mm -hmm. lot of our young people and maybe even adults have learned that their technology or moved into a place of where their, their phone is their new best friend for real, you know, and, and their, their phone, because there is so much there, 
can't offer. I mean, their friends might seem dull in comparison. I don't know what, but but mm -hmm. I'm just seeing a lot of young people in particular really turning away from real conversations, speaking and listening with other human beings in exchange for their technology. And what I am incredibly grateful for, and I think what I'm really hopeful for is the fact that I get to work with these student journalists who, while they may be using their technology, they are, their eyes are up, they're to the horizon, they're looking around, they're listening, they're paying attention, they're seeing what those stories are in other human beings and other human lives around them. And they're really compelled to ask questions, engage in real conversations and listen to each other. Um, so that, that just really gives me hope. In this next part, I called up Ivy Kaplan, who's read more of The Tower's work this year than I have for her analysis on the reporting that they've done during this pandemic. All right, Ivy. So I interviewed Ellen Cowie uh, at the master's school last week, and I think I counted that they had like something 90 or close to 100, you know, specifically coronavirus categorized stories on their website and a lot of hit best of snow. So you've read a lot of their work. If there's just kind of one quick general overall thing that you remember about their work that, uh, and that you think about the, the work that they're doing, what would that be? I have two things that come to mind really quickly. Um, the first are the angles that they're able to come up with for their COVID related stories. Um, a lot of the submissions we get for Best of Snow are more school specific and they detail really community oriented things like the specifics of a school reopening plan or um, I don't know, more local things that don't nationally trans don't actually translate that well to a national platform like Best of Snow. So the angles that the students at Masters have been able to come up with um, are really interesting. They're different and they're not hyper-specific in that same way. The second thing um, are the interviews that they're able to get. They frequently have really great authoritative sources that they're able to track down and incorporate into their stories. I was looking back a little bit on some of the stories that were published on Best of Snow and they've gotten interviews with doctors and psychologists and professors. They even had interviews with like the CEO and some really high up executives of mm. data analysis companies who are doing a, a lot of work with um, COVID vaccines. So just the fact that they're able to get those interviews and reach beyond the people in their school for that authoritative perspective, I think is really great. Um, you know, Ellen talked about with me about how, you know, master's school is a, a part day school, part boarding school. Um, you know, so they have um, students from all over the world, really, essentially, um, that are a part of their school, and they can really work those sources and kind of their connections and look at their alumni network and things like that. But the first thing that that you mentioned um, about their work and sort of being convertible to a more national publication or, or website that wants to show off their work, like Best of Snow, 
you know, that is, like you said, something they're doing well. That's something that other schools should be capable of doing as well. But what are some specific examples um, that you can remember from master's school that, that you have turned over to Best of Snow? They did a story a while back and they've also done some cool things using Adobe Spark to give their stories mm -hmm. some unique packaging. Um, but they did a story a while back where it was more focused on younger children and how they're coping with the pandemic. So they talked to a bunch of elementary and middle school kids, which is really cool because a lot of the majority of our clients and the majority of the stories that we get at Best of Snow are high school oriented. So that was funny to see quotes from younger students being incorporated. They also did a story I thought was really great on substance abuse throughout mm -hmm. COVID and how now, because so many people are isolated so much, they're turning to those more destructive coping mechanisms. So they looked into that. They talked to some sources who had been suffering from that as well as doctors. Oh, the one other one that stands out to me is they did another story about the publishing industry and how books mm. have really thrived throughout COVID. Um, and particularly even these like more local bookstores, because especially if we think back to the beginning of COVID, everyone was ordering things in bulk and mm -hmm. Amazon was getting a lot of orders. So they just couldn't prioritize or fulfill those smaller book orders. So Masters, the staff of the tower, um, analyzed that, how that impacted these local bookstores. So I thought that was really interesting too. Okay. It just really shows how COVID has touched everything. Like you could take any subject almost and give it a COVID angle. It doesn't have to actually be the disease itself. Yeah. You know, we talked about that too, where, you know, they started out with like a, a COVID category on their website where all of their coverage of it would just get filtered into. And that's where they would publish all of their COVID stories. But now you look at their website and it's like, everything is tied to it. It's just a specific part of life now where you look at their sports page and the pictures, the athletes are wearing masks and like there, it's like, there you go. There's, it's just a part of everyday life. It's something that you deal with. It's an angle on every single story. Journalism 101 is a production of School Newspapers Online. The music in this episode comes from Pixabay, while my interviews with Ellen and Ivy were recorded via Zoom and edited on Audacity. You can listen to more episodes of the show anywhere you get your podcasts, and while you're there, please rate and review us so that more journalism aficionados can hear these valuable conversations. Bye for now.